You're listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. People ask me, because I'm a TV critic, they say... You know, what's your favorite TV show? And usually I'll say something that's on the air right then because they're usually looking for recommendations for like what they can go check out on Netflix or whatever. But when people ask me, what's your favorite show of all time? Uh, I only have one one real answer, and that is always, always, always The Simpsons. I was not allowed to watch it as as a young child. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm old enough to have been in the that first wave of kids who everybody was like, well, Bart Simpson's a bad influence on the children of America. But also, it's kind of always been around in that way that I think it has for a lot of us. And I, I we could argue about favorite episodes, favorite characters, you know, the show's long history. It's still on the air. And I can't imagine the show being the same without its wonderful cast. And this year, one of them is nominated for an Emmy for her work on the show for the first time. This is a weird thing about the Emmys. She has won an Emmy for playing Bart Simpson, but has never been nominated. It's it's a very strange quirk of how their voice actor system worked in the 90s versus now. But uh, Nancy Cartwright, who voices Bart Simpson, a number of other characters, and, and does a bunch of other stuff, uh, in addition to that, is here this week. And we're, I'm really excited to talk to her. I, I think you're going to enjoy it. Nancy, it's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So when I was uh, a 10-year-old boy myself, that was when kind of that first wave of Simpsons, you know, promotion and everybody was excited about the show and it was changing television. Uh, And I read an article that said the voice of Bart Simpson is not a 10-year-old boy. It's this woman. And I was like, no, that's inaccurate. (laughs) That is incorrect. That had to have been disturbing. Yeah. (laughs) It took a while to wrap my head around it. A pregnant woman, nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) And so that in those early days of the show, when that was sort of first uh, breaking through and like there were a lot of stories about you were you were doing this like was that kind of surreal for you when the show was just huge you know what to be honest with you not really mm-hmm. um when i was told about the audition it was if you go back a little further on the tracy Ullman show sure, right sure. um i was to go in for the voice of lisa and um i was told it was called an interstitial and i had never heard that word before <laughs> what is an interest it's a bumper what's a bumper oh it takes you from the show to a commercial right you know and then back you know to uh, from the show to the interstitial to the commercial back to another little animated doodah and then back to tracy's show right. uh, oh so it's not even really a show it's just like you know, one minute of animation. Yeah. Okay. All right. I was a little nonplussed by the whole thing. And lots of people know this, but for those who don't, I did not want to do Lisa. I saw Lisa there, but Bart was, the audition for Bart was right there. And like, bam, between eight-year-old middle child and a 10-year-old high, you know, school-hating underachiever and proud of it. Who would not want to do that, man? Yeah. It was like, I, that's the one I wanted to do, and I did it, and was Matt Groening hired me on the spot. So that was a very good decision on my part, but I had no, you know, other than that, it's like, to me, it was just another job. Mm-hmm. But then flash forward about 48 little interstitials later, and... PR for the show was saying, yeah, we're going to develop this into a half-hour show on prime time. 
and and Bart's going to be the star. And I'm like, whoa, really? I love that idea. I loved it, but none of us obviously had the clue, including Matt and Jim and Sam, that 30 years later, you know, we'd still be on the air and still producing new shows or what. It's incredible. Right, right. Sometimes you hear that about an actor they read an audition side or they read a role and they're like, yes, I connect with this. What was it about that that made you say, okay, I can do this. I know who this is. You know, it was his personality. It just was fun. It was a fun character do, to do. He was just recalcitrant. He was just a troublemaker. And you didn't really see a whole lot of—you you just got kind of one dimension on him for for quite a while. And then when we, when we entered into the half-hour show, though, that's when they had— they had a lot of leeway, not unlike a half-hour sitcom, and it was the same structure as a half-hour sitcom. Mm-hmm. So there was time to develop, and obviously Matt and Jim and Sam, all of them contributed to the development and the arc, not only of the show, but of the characters. And if you go back, and recently I've been looking at the oldest episodes and realizing, God, there was so much happening. You know, the look of the show, it's changed so much because of the introduction, you know, decades later um, of digital. But even our voices, you know, it's incredible. People have asked me, do you think Bart's voice has changed over the years? I'm like, no, no, I don't think so. Well, yeah, it actually has. Mm. When When I did early Bart, like on the Tracy Ullman show, it was more like, you know, Bart was like, he was just, he was like, really mean, no, Lisa. And it was sort of, I pitched him kind of like down here. Yeah. Like, we're not going to go. I, I didn't do it. No way. And and now the, the placement for Bart is, the regular placement is like, what's happening, man? Mm-hmm. It kind of sits up here. Of course, if he, if we do a show where it's another um, throwback show where Bart is a two-year-old, I can just take my regular voice and pretend like I just inhaled some helium and I can take him and I can sort of move him over to here and he would be sort of like, Dada, no, no, dada, no, Homer, no, Homer. Or I can take the regular again, go back to zero again and here. And if he ends up being like a, you know, he ages a little bit. Here's Bart at age 10. Here's here's Bart at age 12. Here's Bart at age 15. Here's Bart at age 40, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just not that our voices do that because I, I don't know that in life our voices get lower as we get older. But it's a way that, that a voice can help to— um, support the look of the character right. as we see him on television. Yeah, yeah, that's that's we don't do a video podcast and I'm glad we don't, but I do wish our listeners could watch you do that cuz it's so effortless and like so fun to watch you <laughs> slip between all those different octaves and 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 versions of the voice. I, I really I really um, loved seeing that. Cool. Um cool. but uh, one thing that you mentioned sort of pinged for me which is uh the idea that like when you only have your voice to work with, you have to find a way to supplement the visuals. And you've done a lot of voice roles in, in many different projects. And you've also done a lot of, you know, roles where you're there on camera. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, how what's the approach you take when you have a voice role to create that whole character when you, like, don't have your anything to work with but your voice? Yeah, well, this may surprise you, but the main thing is don't wear dangly earrings. Make sure my watch is not making any noise because I'll stand there and this is just a technical thing. It not It's not really character, but it's disturbing. And because the microphone, all we have is this electronical device that picks up sound waves that then goes through feet or miles of, of electric cord that then goes to, we got this 
Jay is sitting here over Jay. here. He's yeah. like, my, or he's our engineer. Hey, dude. Hi, Jay. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> we're having a good time here. <laughs> he's over there, and we're looking. We've been on six minutes and 50 seconds. Right. You know, uh, Jay needs to keep a count of, and as I turn off mic, see how sensitive this mic is? I'm right. a little bit off mic, and as I turn into the mic, it gets better. Sure. So all the electronical and technical aspect of it is where, where I have my attention just doing voiceovers. When I do on-camera work, obviously there's there's a there's a ground they would block out you know kind of choreograph what that scene is but um the attention really is on the words and your character and the communi- communicating right. i there's an extra added thing here is that i have to keep attention on the technical aspect of just having a microphone it doesn't stop me from lifting my arms or and when i do when I do Nelson Muntz, look what happens to my brow. Sure. My brow gets furrowed. <laughs> and you can also see I don't use Botox. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say. I don't really, I never really had a process to develop a character. Sure. What helps me is what the character looks like. Mm-hmm. Is that I will see. And the Simpsons, it's so funny because they have no jaw. Yeah. And that is a, that's actually a crucial and a very helpful um, guide. Mm-hmm. A guide to follow in ter- and teeth, how the jaws and the teeth are. Because when I do certain voices, not I've not, I don't use this voice on The Simpsons, but on other shows or shows that I've done or whatever. That there, if there's like a character that has like no tooth, a little girl says she's like seven years old and yeah. she's quite intelligent and she speaks in a very articulate manner as that I, you can see visually, you can see how I'm really using my lips to help form the enunciation of all these words. Yeah. And that helps to create a certain sound and create a persona <laughs> just with my voice. Wow, wow. So... I was going over your IMDb page, which of course can be inaccurate, but I was going over it with, uh, with a coworker and we were like, wow, this is just, if you're an 80s kid, there's so much 80s kid nostalgia here. Before The Simpsons even, the snorks and shirt tails and yeah. all these, like you were, did some additional voice work on pound puppies. Yeah. Like if you are, were a child oh, no, in the 80s. I was bright 80s, eyes. I was bright eyes. Bright eyes? Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a child of the 80s, uh, yeah. as I am, like there's a lot of nostalgia tied up in that. And yeah. Like right from the start of your career, Career, you were working in in this sort of voice work, yeah. In addition to doing on camera stuff, and how did you end up working in in a voiceover? Was that like uh, uh, was was that a conscious choice, or was it something you you had just always yeah. done voices and you fell into it? You know, Todd, it actually was my whole purpose. Mm-hmm. Most actors that come to Hollywood, I mean, Hollywood is film and television, and. Even today, it will, well, more today than it was back then, but certainly not back in the late 70s. It wasn't the—people did not pursue careers in, in voiceover work and doing cartoon voices. But that was my whole impetus, is that I had done competitive speaking when I was in high school and in college. I did really well, brought home big trophies, first lots of first places, got a scholarship to go to the university because I could do funny voices. I never even knew there was such a thing. But, wow, they're paying for a full scholarship. Scholarship at Ohio University. My parents, I'm one of six kids, so that was like awesome. I don't know that I would have gone otherwise. So for two years, I was on full scholarship and delivered the goods, continued to do well at the university on a on a grander scale mm-hmm. instead of just the, you know, Ohio. It ended up being more, um, 
more of a tri-state area. <laughs> you know, it was mostly the um, Midwest and uh, East Coast. Yeah. And fifth place in the national championship, you know, in exposition speaking, where I was talking about um, animation. Right. And they, we had no internet. I, I don't know where I got, I got my references from maybe a couple of articles and maybe one book and writing about how animation is done. And I had no idea. I was just doing it. But anyway, it seemed to work. And then meanwhile, in the summers, I worked at a radio station that, long story short, connected up with a voice pioneer, Dawes Butler, mm -hmm. transferred to UCLA because Dawes lived right down the street from UCLA. <laughs> And I got into the theater department because they did not have a communications department. Right. The theater seemed to be, for what I was doing with animation, just with my voice, not the artwork. Theater seemed to be the, you know, that should be my major as opposed to animation major or right. film major. Because right. it was my voice. So working on stage and working on stage was not was not foreign to me. I'd done junior class plays and summer theater and children's theater and had done that too. But I never really sought that out as a career. I just, you know, how does anybody make a living? I, I guess I didn't really see myself doing that, although a lot of my friends did. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I had considerations and I don't know where I got these viewpoints about not being pretty enough or I'm too fat or whatever the consideration was. I just said, no, I'm doing, I'm doing cartoon voices. Right. So that was that. But UCLA um, provided a playground for which I could have fun on the stage. And I started Dawes Butler, who was my mentor, who was Huck and Yogi and Quick Draw. And I would take these lessons on Sundays, you know, and just live for that. And he was so sweet. And he and his wife would take me out to dinner and drive me back to my dorm. And I kind of became, you know, the daughter that they had four sons, but no daughter. I would have been their fifth child and mm -hmm. the daughter they never had. But that's how Dawes and Murtis sort of took care of me. They He put his arms around me and just welcome me into his family. And um, eventually, I think it was about in 1981, I moved in September 19th, 1978 is when I moved, took an airplane for the first time, never been on a plane before, hmm. moved to UCLA from Dayton, Ohio. And um, by 1981, I was going into Hanna-Barbera, and they were calling me by then for auditions. Right. And the first one I got was Gloria on Richie Rich. And so that was the first gig was a voiceover job. But I had been doing theater, and I had done a play um, outside of UCLA. I had done a, a play in Hollywood, and I got an agent. And next thing you know, I'm going in to meet the executives of ABC, and I was hired— practically on the spot. Mm. There was no callback. I knew by the end of the day, they signed me on a, on a contract to do a pilot. It was a ton of money. I mean, I don't know what, what actors get paid to do a pilot now, but I got paid and I wrote my dad. I remember writing my dad a check yeah. for a percentage of that. And he was like, wow. I said, yeah, I, they're, they're going to, I'm doing this pilot. And meanwhile, um, I was doing Richie Rich. So I was working in the industry before I had graduated. I graduated months later, like sure. in June of that year. But then I was on my way, Todd. It's like I started balancing on camera with... My Little Pony, Girlfriend, Snorks, Pound Puppies, Anime. I mean, it just, and then there's Cheers, Empty Nest, Mr. Belvedere, you know, Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, not the way that I had intended, but it's like, who was it? Somebody, um, 
Linda Opes, I was at Linda Opes, wrote a book called Hello, He Lied. <laughs> and it was a good book because she said, ride the horse in the direction it's traveling. Sure. And I hadn't, I read this book years later, but I was naturally doing that. I'm going, wow, this is the direction my career is taking me. This seems like fun. And that was really the the qualification that needed to be or that I established for myself is, is it fun? Right. And if it's fun, bam, I'm in. <laughs> and that continues to be one of my standards. You know, yeah. it has to be fun. If you listen to this podcast, uh, you must be thinking maybe I should uh, go out there and find somebody to read my ads for me because uh, I sometimes stumble through them and maybe sound strange. Uh, and it's But it's tough. You know, it's tough to find good people. It's tough to find people who will do the job you want in the way you want and, and be better at it than you would maybe would be. And that is why I think that you should check out ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click, and then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job. It's better than anybody else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike those other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day, 24 hours, one day. No juggling emails, no calls to your office. You simply screen, you rate, you manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So you can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. So right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. You go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. I, I might have to go do that because, you know, we, we need somebody better doing this. Yeah, you, you were talking about Doss Butler, who's of course a legend, uh, and you said he was your mentor. What's like? What's some advice he gave you that you still use today? One thing he was being funny when he used this word, but he said, "Don't be cosmetic unless it's on a Saturday night," hmm. which I think is cute. And what he what he was trying to say to me was, "Don't put it on, right. you know. Don't put it on. Just take the words as they're written, and you you know." you naturally have the ability to make this your own. So when I was working with Dawes, I I did the private lessons on Sundays, but on Wednesday nights, he would have a a class. And he had a little treasure chest in the middle of the table that said, if you can pay, $10 would be fine. If you can't, pick it up next time. Mm. Something like that. And it was just, he never expected anyone to pay him, but he was— totally fine. You know, people want to keep their exchange in, you know, when they're they want to keep the balance there that, you know, he's giving us something, he should be compensated for that. But he never really pushed it. He was just incredibly generous. So we would do, um, we'd sit around the table and he would, he was a writer also, and he would pass out his scripts and he would cast the parts and we would do the parts. And he, I have to say, he never really, he didn't teach people to do voices, yeah. but he gave us a it was, again, kind of a safe um, arena that we could experiment. And he 
like for me, when I met him through the mail, it's like he would send me scripts through the mail. This is going back another another year or so. But it's like for a year, he would send me scripts in the mail and I would record it on cassette and mail the cassette back to him. He'd listen to it and then he would give me a critique, but he would record it. He wouldn't write it. He would record it on another cassette sure. and mail that back along with, he said here, he says, I'd listen to this. This is Nancy, you really, you knocked it out of the ballpark. This was amazing. I didn't think, you know, I was wondering if you could play someone that's, you know, 20 years older than you. I, I totally believed it. it was completely convincing. Now, I've got another one from you. This is an alien. <laughs> Good luck. You know, let's see what you do. <laughs> yeah. He was just so positive. And in terms of teaching, what did he teach me? He taught me that. Mm-hmm. You have to encourage people. You find the positive things about what someone is doing and accentuate the positive about them and forget about the negative. Don't worry about that. Just that, you know, just say you're amazing. And I'll tell you, I recently, I got this letter. I got this letter from this young woman. She's in her probably her early 20s. She wrote me this letter, and it was a full-page thing, and she just fully gave me credit for, like, saving her life. Oh, wow. It was the most amazing thing. She said, I was ready. You know, I I just— trying to make a go of it. I'm, I'm not from here. I'm from the Midwest. And then I moved out, you know, with my mom. And um, sh- she wanted to make a go of screenwriting and getting lots and lots of rejection. And this this goes along with the, this industry. It's highly, highly competitive. You will find that there are leeches that try to suck out the energy of the artist because they don't know how to do it themselves. And you get a young gal like this who I don't know what her writing ability is, and it doesn't really matter, but the fact that she was communicating that she just felt hopeless. Mm. And then one day she pulled up and somehow my website, my, I guess not a podcast, Instagram or my my Facebook, she went to my Facebook page and she saw something that I had promoted about this film that we'll talk about in a sure. little bit. And she saw that in the film, the, 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 um, one of the messages in the film is it has to do with purpose, that you're important. And I have a number of, of little um, videos that I put together that are, I call them, they're called From Me to You. And they're little, they're about a minute long, little inspirational things, little tips that I can give you. She started watching. She said, you saved, I swear you saved my life. I owe everything to you. You are, I mean, to get, and I've gotten a handful of these in the 36 years that I've been in the voiceover industry. I've gotten maybe a dozen of very, very personal, very personal communications where somebody has really, and I see that she's not a a leech. Mm -hmm. She's not somebody that is like, she's not a fangirl either. And you, I just deal with who's in front of me. And it just, I, I was so inspired by and just so flattered by what she had said. I wrote her back, you know, and reached out to her and pointed out, you know, the positive things. I, I said, I, I'm sure you're wonderful. Mm. You know, to just who doesn't like that encouragement? You don't have to, be, not everybody is an artist, but I think as a being on this planet, you know, that you have the ability to use your imagination and you can make a decision. The hard thing is making the decision. 
Right. That's the main thing is like making a decision. But once you make that decision, bam, it's like all the stars align and think, then you start networking. You can find somebody that agrees with you. That person knows this person that you should meet with and you can exponentially expand your reaches for like-minded individuals that support you as an artist. Yeah. 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 I love it. I just, for me, it's one of the perks that I have being a an anonymous celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's interesting you say that because I saw a video of you a few months ago. Uh you were at I think the grocery store and there were some some students who were selling candy or something. Yeah. And the character you play is one of the most famous people in the world. But you can anonymously go about your yeah. life and then occasionally like break out this voice and people are like, "Whoa." It's, is that fun to do? Do you have fun? Totally. With that? Yeah. Completely. <laughs> completely. It was one kid. If if he had any of his other fellow classmates there, they might have been at other entrances, but I didn't he, I just saw him by himself. This kid, James. And he was just adorable. And I was with my my personal assistant was with me. And I just said, just run the camera. Just hmm. run it. I said, I don't know what's gonna happen. And I never do. Yeah. You never do. And I've done these before. Why did this one? What What is it that made this one go to four? Yeah. What are we at? 70? It's a, It's like we're talking <laughs> tens of millions, like right. 50 million, 70 million, something like that. And it, it just like we saw it growing exponentially hourly. Right. Like 2,000 an hour and then jumping up like within 24 hours, it was, it was 10 million within 24 hours. It was crazy. It was just crazy. It was crazy. And TMZ then bought it and all these other outlets then wanted it and they put it on their thing. And so we don't keep, we don't have record of those, but when you add them all together, it's, it's a lot. And, Mm -hmm. and I still can go anywhere and people don't know who, although some people will say, oh, are you, did you talk to some 13 year old? I go, yeah, that's me. Oh, you know, and it's not like I have a GoPro on my forehead recording everything that's going on in life, but the reaction that I get is priceless. Yeah. It's no, I don't know. I just I I love creating effects like that on people. I think it we both end up benefiting from it in such a cool way. The kid was so surprised as you saw his jaw and you saw the you saw the light go on or the penny drop or whatever when he realized that I wasn't just doing an impersonation. And to me, oh my God, it was priceless. <laughs> what do people tell you about their relationship to this character? Do they say, you know, this is do they tell you their stories about watching The Simpsons with their parents or whatever? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and today it's really interesting because you know, again, it's like none of us knew that we were going to be on the air this long. There's, we're into, see, I have children and now even my son and his wife, I'm a grandmother now. So, and my dad is 90. Wow. My parents are in their 80s and 90s. Then there's me that I've got my son and now they've got, we're, this is like, really, we're health, healthfully into the third generation. You know, of kids that are like eight, nine, ten that are just being introduced to this wacky, you know, quote unquote, normal family. But today's standards, it's like The Simpsons really is tame compared to what is out there on Adult Swim, on some other shows on Fox even, and wherever, you know, Comedy Central, that they are really taking it above and beyond where The Simpsons ever, ever took it. And you look at the beginning, The Simpsons was 
we we first of all we weren't even Fox wasn't even a a real legitimate network. Right, it yeah. only had reached seventy percent of the market. Of course, The Simpsons changed all that. Yeah, but which is cool. But um, my parents couldn't even get the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah. So when you look at the when you look at the humor back then, and to think that children were put in detention or or expelled from school because they wore a you know eat my shorts t-shirt yeah you know oh are you kidding me look at the t-shirts they wear today i am shot it takes all of my motherly instincts to not go up to the kid and say what are you doing yeah hmm. how can you wear a shirt that says that where are the moral values of our of our kids today our culture down to the bottom you know just it's sad yeah. it's sad were you when that was going on when that was you know the controversy around the idea that the show was causing kids to want to be underachievers or whatever like how like how did you feel about that being part of it but also really separate from it well my kids were very young when the show started out I, in fact i ha almost had my daughter at the bowling alley of the of the opening show mm. she was born december the 9th 19th and the show premiered on the 17th wow. at a bowling alley in Santa Monica. So it's like my water broke that night and then it's like she was born a day or so later and it's like, wow, there you go. That's mm. amazing. So my kids were raised as I was learning and, and the Simpsons and the executives and the animators, you know, Wes Archer, David Silverman were learning how and, and, and the, um, Script supervisor was learning how to mark on the script. How do you mark the takes on this? We're doing four takes. It's different than an on-camera show. So looking at the blueprint of the house, they realized David Silverman and Wes put this together as they finally decided they needed to actually have, almost as if the house was being built from scratch, a literal architectural blueprint so that you knew that the living room was here, the stairs were to the right, and taking you upstairs, the kitchen was behind the living room, you know, and so that there was a consistency, right. you know, it, it would be, the continuity would be correct when you watched the show. The early little things on the uh, the bumpers on the Tracy Ullman show, there wasn't consistency. <laughs> so you can see the incredible evolution of the artwork even. Um I forget the question you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, t toward the start of the show, there was, you know, this controversy around, oh, Bart Simpson's oh, yeah. encouraging kids to misbehave or whatever. And as a kid at the time, I was like, kids are already misbehaving. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know that our show, I mean, the show was is not written for children. It was right. never, and we've never gotten any kind of a Nickelodeon show or, or a award or something that we've, oh, we've gotten so many awards, though. Mm. So many People's Choices and Spirit Awards and Emmys, obviously, I don't know, 20, 27, I think the show's up for a couple more this year, but it's like, um, I never really felt like, I, I just go, people, people don't take it so seriously. Right. It's entertainment. It's called entertainment. And yet, the impact that shows have on individuals, whether they're children or not, I don't know about you, but man, for me, I, I'll just give an example, is that I uh, marathon watched um, 24. Right. And I was traveling, I was doing, um, this was like in 2004, and I was on a world tour. I had, I had written a book, and I was right. doing a lecture tour based on the book. And in between, 
like on the airplane and going back to the, there was, you know, once we do the, the, the mic check and do the tech setup for it, there's not much more for me to do. I know what my show is, so it's fine. There's a lot of sitting around. I would go upstairs and go to the hotel and just like close myself in and watch. By the time I would do six or seven, I had to go out for dinner or to breathe or something. I'd go outside and I, I, I couldn't see. I was, I was like looking down the street going, shit, are they after me? <laughs> It's very interiorizing. And you look at the shows that are on television today that, you know, they they can do that to an individual. And it's it's, it's important. So I never really let my kids watch the show. Yeah. They were going to bed at 730 at night. And you know, what are your kids doing up? At, I mean, the show started at eight, but they were only, you know, even by the time they were four, five, six years old, my kids were still going to bed at a proper bedtime, it was more important to me that they be well-rested for right. school the next day. So years later, they found out through the sh- through their friends, and I became popular because of their friends, not because my kids were saying, my mom's Bart Simpson. <laughs> my kids didn't give a crap. They're yeah. like, I would read to them children's stories and do voices, not for— not to try out new voices on. They might have just read it. No, and they would protest. They'd put their hands over their ears, shake their, no, mommy, no, no, and put their hand on my mouth. Just be mommy. Yeah. Hmm. And I thought that was so curious. I was very, I was very touched by that. I mean, it was a little bit like, gosh, I'm just trying to entertain you, but they didn't want that. They wanted mommy, security. Mm. Just tell me a story, mommy. Oh, God, what a lesson. Yeah. Remarkable lesson. I want to, sort of speaking about that that mother-child relationship, I want to talk a little bit about In Search of Fellini, Mm. um, which is centered on a mother-child relationship. Yeah. That's my pivot. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) You you, uh, co-wrote the script for this. You, You have a small part in it. Uh, it's apparently somehow based on stories from your life. I'm wondering, like, what is it that that made this story come out of you at this point in your life? Such a great question. Um, it's almost like I can give you a comparison. Like in 1999, by then, being the voice of Bart Simpson and doing lots of promotion, getting fan mail, people continued to—they asked me so many questions. And it's like when the public demands something, you— you should give them what they want. So then I wrote my life as a 10-year-old boy. Right. And I'm going to be coming out with a new version of that and an audio version of that book because it needs it needs to be upgraded. It's been, yeah, that came out in 2000. So a lot of stuff has happened with The Simpsons since then. So I want to I want to do an up- upgrade, but we'll we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but meanwhile, it's sort of it's it's along the same line for me personally. I felt like a lot of time had gone by cuz I actually took this trip couple years before I was cast as Bart. It was in 1985, sure. and I was in an acting class and studying. My my acting teacher had me take a look at, of all things, Federico Fellini's film called La Strada. Right. And I was so touched by Giulietta Messina's performance as Gelsamina. She played this little clown, a little clown, innocent, who is sold to this circus, and um, Anthony Quinn plays the— you know the strong man, and he he is she is forced to to be his cook and concubine, but he's so mean to her, and right. he you didn't ever see him. Well, actually, he did hit her. Mm-hmm. He would whip her with you know in public, whack, 
Yeah. He would whack her and when she was announcing him. And so there was abuse and he was an alcoholic and he would grab other women and take them out and abuse them. And meanwhile, she's left starving. And she was just the sweet who made the crowd laugh. She played, she played the trombone and the and the trumpet and was just he he broke her. And at the end of the movie, the end of the movie, what what Fellini does, and it's if you can, it's it's a bit depressing. <laughs> it's just it's that's lightly saying it's a bit depressing. But at the end, you do see that Zampano, the Anthony Quinn character, realizes that he really messed up. Right. But that's too late. She's yeah. already gone. So I saw that. I put up every scene, and then I realized, wow. I could get the rights to do this as a play. I could do La Strada on stage. So that was my impetus. So yeah. I wrote all these letters to Dino De Laurentiis, who was one of the producers, and Fellini's office. I got his office address. Wrote a letter, no answer. Wrote another, wrote another, wrote another. Never gave up. Just kept writing letter after letter on my on my um, typewriter with carbon paper. Hmm. And so I would send the original off, and I, I kept everything. I kept copies of everything. So one day I get a letter back from Fellini's office and I couldn't believe it. And they're telling me, don't come. He's going to be here at Christmas, but don't come. I'm like, what? Forget that. I'm out of here, man. I am so going. But I wanted to take in Italy. I wanted to explore the culture. I wanted to eat, to drink, to fall in love. I wanted, I ended up doing just that. Mm -hmm. And I went by myself and here I am like in my twenties and blonde and, you know, I'd never had a boyfriend before. I was like, there was a certain naivete of Nancy, but no back off. It's like, I, I was a little, I couldn't speak the language. That was a little challenging, but I'm an artist. Yeah. So I could, and I have a willingness to communicate. So I would pantomime my way through the country, you know, and meet guys that would become my companions, make stupid decisions. Mm. So I did everything that every young woman should do and probably shouldn't do when I, when I took this trip, made some bad decisions that are definitely a part of the film. And I mean, such bad decisions that I could have, I could have disappeared. Yeah. Something could have happened and nobody would, how would they have found me? Yeah. It's not like I'm carrying, uh, I mean, my, I would put my passport would be locked up so it wouldn't get stolen. I wouldn't carry that with me on my person, oh. but something could happen to me. You know, and no, I, I don't know. I look at God and, and that's, this is part of this film. So there's a little sex, there's some romance, there's definitely some drugs and drinking. And there are guys that you see a certain naive young woman who does make some bad decisions, you know, and there's love and there's a mother, there's a relationship with a mother that is special. And the mother played by the incredible Maria Bello, she plays her and she's, her health is she's not well right and she's challenged how and, and, and she she realizes that she's probably not going to be around forever and yet she's raised her daughter she's kind of led she's encouraged almost a sheltered life because she didn't want her daughter to be exposed to the real world and they watched movies together and it's just I don't want to tell the whole story, but it's like <laughs> you will find out in the in watching the film, you'll be taken on your own journey and get to experience Verona and Venice and Rome, and you see the romance, and you're going to taste the wine as as Lucy falls in love, and it's 
I'm so lucky I feel that I had this experience because there was no way I was going to do La Strada on stage after I did that trip. Yeah. It had to be developed into something more personal. So in 95, I did it as a one-woman show and yeah. called it In Search of Fellini. And it, you know, we we ran for several months and it did quite well. I got a Dramalog award for it and the play got a, a for lighting got a, got an award. But I wasn't, this wasn't my, I'm going, okay, now what do I do with it? Um, by then I was on The Simpsons. I had two little, little babies and I'm thinking, wow, I, I don't really see myself as a writer, but we could develop this as a, as a screenplay, um, tried to do it and pulled in some producers and that didn't work out so well. And by then I had a co-writer, Peter, who's been with me business-wise since, geez, since probably 93, I think, or 91. We, I'm not quite sure, like around 91, long time to be with this guy as a partner. We've done a dozen scripts on this, wrote 12 or 13 different versions and took some from this one and from script number three and put that in script number seven and took script number five, seven, and nine became script number 11. It was an amazing journey on its own and lots of hope. But finally, when the internet was introduced, that made it much easier. But my confidence level, I still didn't speak the language. How am I going to produce a film in Italy? Who's going to be the production crew? And it just, you know, for myself, I do some personal things that really, as as an artist, as a being, have enhanced me. And, and my confidence level just skyrocketed. I said, we're doing this thing. And that was about four years ago. Right. And it, you know, it was just pulled in the, uh, an amazing team of other artists that were like-minded in terms of what is art, what message do you want to communicate? And I'll tell you, I just looked at this. I, you just look at the stuff that's out there. We have the opportunity to make a difference. And I think it's the artist that makes the difference. We can elevate the culture through our work and inspire people and I just look at the crap that's out there. And some of these are award-winning crap. Mm -hmm. And it just shocks me that when you have an opportunity that more artists, I don't think they have the confidence to know and that they don't really realize how much power they have that they can make a difference to make the world better. Right. And not everybody has the same goals and purposes. Some people, they don't really care. They just want to work. Yeah. You know, they, they want to work and they want to entertain people, you know, and whatever genre that is, you know, it's not like you're going to change the world doing a horror movie. And yet horror movies are quite entertaining, you know, to get your heart going like 170 beats a minute. It's like, wow, that, you know, that's a thrill. Yeah. I'm not putting down other people for what they're doing, but I am saying you can do more. Sure. Hi, I'm Ben Epstein from the Limited Upside Podcast. And I'm Mike Prada, the SBNation.com MBA editor. And we wanted to tell you about our team preview series. Yes, Ben, it's amazing. The NBA season is almost here again. It comes around so quickly, and this year a little earlier. So we're doing these team previews fast and furious. Check us out. Look on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those great places. Search for Limited Upside. It is a national NBA podcast, and we sprinkle in the flavor of all the various SB Nation NBA communities. So we got feet on the ground as well as Mike's overarching 
national narratives. You ready to hear about how your team is going to do really awesome this year and you don't want to think about the cold, hard reality of a long (laughs) winter? You'll want to listen to this podcast series. We go team by team all the way up leading into the season. Check it out at SBNation.com, but also on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The actress who's sort of the lead of this movie plays, not you, but you-ish, let's yeah, say. Yeah, Ksenia. Yeah, okay, you pronounced her name for me, so I didn't have to try it. I'm a yeah. Ksenia Solo. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, I've always wondered this, like when people have movies, they're sort of autobiographical and they have to cast someone to play them. Mm-hmm. Is it weird to meet younger you, in essence? You know, I didn't really, honest to God, I had to actually separate myself out. And I had right. to, to, like, be a producer instead of being the writer and the artist. I needed to be a producer. And who who is going to be able to communicate the essence of this character, Lucy Cunningham? And 4,000 young women submitted, you know, were submitted for this part. I just find that staggering. 4,000. Wow. And casting had to go through and, uh, you know, just reject a lot, a lot, a lot of women. And it was a lot of rejections for a lot of so many people wanted to have this opportunity. But it came down to actually it was four and they were put on tape. And then out of the four, it came down to two. But Ksenia really, I'll tell you what it, what locked it in for me and for for the other producers on the show was that she had a body of materials. She she just had a little bit better experience. There's a certain responsibility that the lead in a film has to be able to have and also represent Mm -hmm. when you're, when you're in a position like that, because if you don't have the confidence level of the artwork behind you, it's going to be difficult to be the one that comes onto the set to set the tone and the example for everybody else that's counting on you. So you have to, the lead has to represent and take responsibility for what that part is. And she had already done, she'd done Black Swan, she'd done, um, Lost Girl, I Lost think. Girl, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's currently on Turn, which is an AMC uh, sure, Netflix sure. show. She's, oh my God. I'll tell you the only scene. It was like we shot a couple weeks in Ohio and then seven weeks in Italy. But as we're shooting and doing this more and more, I'm seeing the way I just gave her her space. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to get involved. She's she's playing me, but but— not really. It's right. just like I. She's doing her interpret. She doesn't. She can't. Nobody. How? How do you do that? <laughs> I mean, playing Abraham Lincoln maybe would be another thing. Yeah. Because there's. You could actually. There's footage of him saying, the Gettysburg Address. That right. you can duplicate a sound even, but you can replicate a look. We did not. The director Taryn Lexton. Um, throughout the film did not want to be spot on in terms of not just me. Although, gosh, when I did my one-woman show, when I pull up pictures of me doing I couldn't believe, and I realized this well after shooting the film, we had the same haircut. <laughs> I mean, I looked and I went, oh my God, look at this. And I was, I, I was a few pounds lighter than I am now, but... She, Oh my God, that is too, that's too amazing. I didn't know that, yeah. but it was just a choice. And he didn't want to, when there, there's scenes that, well, 
whatever you want to add. I can keep on talking forever. <laughs> uh, what, what? Well, I do. I do want to ask uh, what it, what is it about Fellini that that speaks to you? And is is Lestrada your favorite, or do you have a different favorite of his now? Well, at that time, I was not very familiar with Fellini. Right. I had heard of La Dolce Vita, but I'd never seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never seen Lestrada before, so that to me was a an assignment. Mm-hmm. So I looked at it and then it became a mission and then it became an adventure, you know, it was, in, and then it became a passion. Right. Um, since then I have seen other films of his, but that was really the impetus. It was just that one film. And now, I mean, when you look at Satira, when, when you go see In Search of Fellini, if you're a Fellini fan, and you're familiar with his work, you will see little bits and characters of La Dolce Vita, Satyricon, Amarcord, um, Eight and a Half, um, Knights of Cabiria. And they're just little moments. And I I think for um, filmmakers and and students that are out there, I would like to think that they would be curious about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Teron brought that intelligence brought that viewpoint into Peter's and my script. Sure. And Ksenia gets sucked into the vortex of a Fellini-esque world. Right, right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So when I, I always am kind of curious about this when it comes to the the voice acting world, and that is, like, are you? It's, there's such a small group of people that do it. Like, do you all know each other? Do you all like? Are you all like <laughs> vaguely friendly with each other? I don't. I don't expect you all to like hang out and you know go grocery shopping. Yeah, there's together, a but. private mall that's underground that is like it's, it's <laughs> near Valencia, and we have to have a certain voiceover SAG after card in order to get in there. No, um, you know, it is. It is seems to be its own fraternity sorority kind of a thing, like yeah. its own kind of a club because it's 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 not. There just aren't as many, although there are, today it has changed over the years. It used to be that people would want to do voiceovers to supplement their income. But if you have the passion to just want to do that, your chances of succeeding would be greater because it's such a, a laser point focus. Do right. you see what I mean? <laughs> um no, I'm in touch with a handful of my compadres, you know, but at this stage in the game, I don't go to auditions anymore. I'm not really on that, the direct line for new shows that are constantly being created. I don't do that, but I'm in a different position now where I am developing and producing shows like that where I can hire right. these guys that do that. So it's, for me, it's it's a new game. It's more, ch- it's, it's a different challenge. I mean, my challenge, it just got to be the point where I'm going, how am I going to not sound like Bart Nelson, Ralph Kearney, Todd, Database, Yeah, you know, um, Chucky, uh, Mindy? How do I not sound like that? Because it's so prevalent with The Simpsons that other producers can hear. They, they're going, we don't want Ralph Wiggum. And it, it, it just went, wow, okay. Yeah. I, I've got to come up with a new game because I'm an artist and I'm not going to let this stop me. How do I do that? So it's like I ha- started rejecting auditions because of that. Mm. And it was a transitional point because I'm turning, sometimes just turning down an opportunity for work. And I go, you know what? I want to give a new, a new young woman or a girl or whatever, give her a chance to have her break. This can be her break and it will be fun for her. For me, not so fun. Hmm. What can I do now that's going to be fun? And that's producing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you have younger voice actors whose work really excites you at this point? 
Well, actually, there is this one gal, and I will. T- there's, there's. I'm sure there's more, but one gal comes to my mind, and I'll tell you, it was her persistence that really did it. Is that uh, she lived in my neighborhood? Sure. And she would put a little note in my mailbox, and you know, depending upon the personality of the recipient of that, it could be taken like, oh my god, now somebody knows I live here. I'm going to be, you know, it's a fangirl. She didn't, it wasn't like that. She wrote me a really sweet letter. She says, you know, I just want to tell you, I, I, I happen to, um, I love voiceover work. I am creating my own website right now. And I've done a few things. I'm not in the union yet. But when I found out that you lived in the neighborhood, I just felt like, you know, I don't want to push you or, or I'm certainly not a stalker or anything like that. But I did want to say that I really admire you. Maybe sometime we could have tea together. Best regards, Nicole. Mm. And so I took at that. And I thought, oh, that's kind of sweet. And that was the end of it. Two months goes by, okay? And then I got another communication, another little note in the mailbox. Hi, don't, don't know if you remember me or not. It's me again. Hope everything's going great. I just want to let you know I saw you on, you know, you did an interview on Entertainment Tonight or whatever. I just yeah. thought it was great. I wanted to let you know that I just got cast in another in parentheses, non-union thing. This continued, and just after a while, I'm like, I got to have her over for tea. <laughs> so I had her come over. You know, we spent a half hour, 45 minutes together. Just she's picking my brain on, you know, pulling from me. What did you do? I just, I'm such a fan. She was just like, she was 17. Wow. She was the cutest thing. Just, just enthusiastic and just adorable. And I was tickled by this because... It just, it was not a whole lot of effort on my part, but she demonstrated, I would tell her to do something, she would go and do it, and she would win from it. So, Nicole Tompkins, she's absolutely adorable, and, you know, so she's working, and she continues to work. She just finished a, a uh, an independent film. Oh, she works on camera. She works for me. Hmm. Great. I pulled her in, and now she she's my social media guru. Just oh, adorable. That's great. That's great. Uh, so you and the rest of the cast of The Simpsons, uh, how, like how often do you see each other? I know, I think the show, you, see, you all used to record in a group back in the day, but I don't believe you do that anymore. Like how, but what, yeah. how often do you guys see each other? Like, like what is it like to be in that very small fraternity of, of these yeah. people who are, again, famous with a, but very anonymously so, as you put it? You know, unlike an on-camera show where you will have blocking and you do rehearsals and you're on the set or mm-hmm. on location hours and hours and day after day and sometimes weeks and months together, it's not it's not the same art form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to a studio and if you can imagine what it would be like uh, doing old-fashioned radio, yeah. we go into a set. I have my own stand. I have a microphone. I have my own light system. I have a high chair. I have a, a regular chair because sometimes if we're there for four hours or, or I'll stand, push the chairs back and I just stand. Sometimes I get tired and want to be on the high chair or whatever. Um we have extended stand uh, stand extenders so that we can lay out the scene all, you know, in order so you're not making noise, turning the pages. And it's become kind of like a very well-oiled machine. Right. We show up. We get started. We tend to start on scene number one, but very quickly, it, it, we don't necessarily run in chronological order. Some people are not like if if I'm shy in that they'll finish me off and I'll I'll get to leave yeah. everybody else so it's you know it's sort of smart doing it that way and you don't have to do it in order that's yeah. fine the editor 
like Peter, you know, can like edit out all the flunks so that I made in this podcast. Um, but uh, so that's how we do it. We have water. We don't take breaks. Yeah, we we do from ten to two. But like, when do you do lunch? Well, you go down to the green room when you're not in a scene, feed your face, and then go back. For Dan and myself, he and I are pretty heavy in most most of the shows. Dan more than myself, right? Mm-hmm. But. Even when I'm in it, like if they're trying to get me done to get me out, sometimes it go and I'll be nibbling in between takes, <laughs> you know, try not to, you know, eat the crunchy stuff, but, you know, just cram a piece of chicken down my throat. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine. Personally, you know, Dan had recently done a play mm-hmm. and I went to see it. Yardley went to see it. I'm not sure what the, you know, Hank doesn't live in LA. Harry doesn't live in LA. Right. Julie kind of lives out and, you know, it's, but, but getting support from some of the writers and Matt Groening will come to these things too. And it's, it's, I'll tell you for me personally, it's very touching to have the support, but we don't really, we don't get into the kind of socializing and, and, and gossip type stuff because when we're on the soundstage together, we're working, Mm -hmm. we go and we just start and there's no, there a couple potty breaks, a five-minute potty break. Okay, good. We all take a break and some cream, some food down. Sure, sure. We're heading into the end of the show, mm. um, and I want to. Uh, I'm going to ask you our, our questions we ask at the end every week, but I, I want to ask finally, sort of, to this discussion. Uh, when actors play a character for a while, they often like understand that character sometimes better than the writers, mm. things like that. And I'm wondering, what is it that you have realized about Bart Simpson over 30 some years? And do you feel that, do you feel that protectiveness over him where you're like, okay, oh, he, he would not do this, you know? That's awesome. Such a great question. And yes, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, they'll bring in, some of the writers have only been there for six or seven years, right. which is actually a long time for, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know, oh, it's 29 year stretch. That's not very long. But um, yes, I do. And occasionally there'll be a scene and Bart will say something and it seems more like that's a Lisa line. Right. You mm-hmm. know, but I'll talk to Yarlin. She goes, yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. So we'll read it as is, as mm-hmm. written out of respect. And then I'll say to Al Jean, who's our showrunner, um, Al, I'm, you know, what do you think? I'm thinking like this is probably like a Lisa line. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know. I think you're right. And actually, I usually am 100% right, I'm just saying. <laughs> That's what I have in common with Bart Simpson. I'm right! <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So we end, we end the show every week with asking folks some of the same questions. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to actually introduce a new one for you because I'm, I'm interested to hear you, you talk about this. Okay. Who's the character you've played that you really love who's kind of under the radar? Who, like, people, when they talk to you, don't talk about this role? On, on specifically The Simpsons? No, or? just in general, throughout your career. Probably it's probably it's Chucky. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Chucky from the Rugrats. I'm telling you that character in my generation, you know, the people that started watching the Simpsons when they were in their 30s, yeah. you know, and younger because I will go to universities and they know that I'm Bart Simpson, but man, when I start doing the Chucky, you know, from the Rugrats, is Chucky Fitzgerald. Is Angelica here? I don't like clowns. You know, it's like they absolutely flip out. That because they were not allowed to watch The Simpsons when it right. first came on. Yeah. And then they find out that I, Chris Cavanaugh, created Chucky. Mm-hmm. She retired at some point. They didn't want to retire the show. So I was brought in and that's... That was the most challenging thing I've ever done wow. was take over that established part. And mm-hmm. 
it, it went on for, I don't know how many more episodes, a couple of several more years in another movie. And I was privileged enough to be able to work with that family. That yeah. was a, their own family. And I'm coming in kind of as a stranger. Hmm. That was, that was interesting, very challenging. Oh. But Chucky probably is the one. Um, from The Simpsons, um, the Under the Radar. Well, there's this, it's kind of between Nelson and Ralph because both of them, Nelson has a soft spot in my heart because the character are, arc on him was really long. Right. And it's like they found a certain sentimentality of this character that that it was late, it was well into probably 10 years when they found the sweetness. Yeah. And he's got the incredibly hot Mrs. Simpson. <laughs> I just love that. And then when he sings to his father, yeah. Papa, can you hear me? The whole take on um, Yentl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was so funny. And Ralph, all I have to do is open my mouth and do Ralph, and everybody laughs. No no matter where I am, I can just say, I'm Idaho. It's such a C, it makes you laugh. He's such a walking non sequitur. Yeah, exactly. I love all my boys. Great, great. (laughs) Uh, Who's the actor you've learned the most from that you've never met? Wow. Todd. (laughs) Todd, dude, that's an incredible question. Um. Probably, okay. Okay, here's one. Judy Holiday. Okay. Never met her because she's a totally different life lifetime. Yeah. She just, to me, was, uh, I just loved her. Yeah. I just loved her. Her her attention to detail, her commitment, her seamless performances, her ability in Adam's rib. She just, to me, uh, yeah, I would have loved to have met her. Yeah. That would have been great. And I've, ne- I've never met Carol Burnett. Yeah. She's another one that I would have loved to have met and just had a conversation with her. Yeah. She was so genius. Oh, my gosh. Lucille Ball, another one. And I'm, it's funny. I'm pulling out these comedians. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I could say Marlon Brando, but I I, I mean, I, 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 I'm leaning towards these these incredibly powerful women yeah. that, that took risks, mm-hmm. that did things that were really out of the box that nobody had ever been introduced to before. And look what they 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 did. They left their marks. They they established you know a persona and and a certain integrity in terms of what it means to be an artist. Yeah. And in particular, all those three women, a comedian. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, we've we've talked a lot about about movies uh, and and old movies you've watched. What's your favorite movie ever, and why? Well, it's so funny because this this question has been asked. I mean, I mean, it's easy to say to kill a mockingbird. I it, that that's the one that first comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. I was just so incredibly moved by the relationship between Gregory Peck's character and and the kids. Yeah. You know, and what he had to do in order to protect his children and how the children were Neither of these kids were actors. Right. They were cast because they had a certain, qua- a natural quality, and they didn't have to put it on, you know, to create those characters of Gem and Scout. And I just was young when I when I saw it, mm-hmm. and then I, you know, read it, and I guess junior high school read it and just loved it. And then years later ended up getting a special and it was like an anniversary edition that had tons of interviews by Gregory Peck and oh, just wow. learned more about just the the kids and there's an interview with Mary Badham that just 
wow, I was just blown away by it. I, yeah. I love, I love getting DVDs. I still love buying DVDs because most of them have the making of, or they, you know, they have the, um, you know, commentaries. Yeah. They're incredibly helpful. It took me so many hours. I don't know how many, like there's an edition of Forrest Gump where there's like three commentaries on there and the movie itself is so long. Mm-hmm. But that film too was just... Wow, just remarkable. Yeah, yeah. I like soaking it up. I like uh, getting more data. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am I am a fan of DVDs as well, so I'm glad to hear you speaking mm. up for them. Uh, and I'm glad the Simpsons DVDs are coming back. So, yes, they're doing it, yeah. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Uh, you can watch The Simpsons on Fox. You can watch it reruns everywhere. The film In Search of Fellini will be in theaters soon. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. And in case you hadn't guessed, that's me. I haven't done a thing about reading closing credits in a couple weeks. I'm sure you missed that bit because it's America's favorite bit. I'm going to read some closing credits now. I hope you enjoy them. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. This podcast was recorded at the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. Uh, the editor, who you you hear his name in the outtakes every week, is Peter Leonard. Uh, and our recording engineer is Jay Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or your platform of choice. It helps us climb the rankings. It helps us get really great guests. It helps us keep making this show that I I, I hope you're enjoying. I, I, I hope you think it's interesting. Anyway, I'll be back next week with somebody else from the world of arts and entertainment, the world of media and culture, just somebody that I think is interesting. But until then, don't have a cow, man. I, I want okay. to answer it. Peter, so. you know how to edit it. All right. Yes, thank you, Peter. <laughs> love you. Love, love you so much, Peter. <laughs> <laughs>